Well, good morning once again. It's, uh, as I said earlier, a, a real privilege to be here with you and share a little bit about uh, what God's been doing in our ministry, and I'll try to combine a little update on what God has been doing along with some spiritual challenges that uh, I believe the Lord has put on my heart. Let us pray together. Father, in this next few minutes, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher. May you illumine your word and bring your truth to us. May those things that come from my mind alone be quickly forgotten, and may those things that come from the heart of God go deep into our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you here for? Is what I've entitled this, and I want to share with you a little what I'm there for, what I'm in Africa for, and a little bit of how I got there. So I got there, I started my life, I'm the little one held up in my mother's arms there. That's the Belgian Congo, that's the only picture I have is a little child, the tiniest one, uh, you can see the the photos, it's a real photograph, it's torn. We left the Congo in the middle of a civil war and my mother grabbed what she could of family pictures. And so not many were left of me, but that's, that's me and my brothers. I was raised on various people's backs throughout uh, Congo, the Belgian Congo at that time where my parents were involved in medical mission work. My father was a uh, physician and my mother was helping and teaching and working in a nursery and taking care of babies and a lot of different things. Um, and that's how I started my life seeing that happen. We came to Marquette uh, when I was five years old in 1969. And uh, I went to Whitman Elementary School here in Marquette. I don't know if it still exists or not. Um, Gave my life to Jesus in Marquette. I went to middle school at Bothwell Middle School, not too far from here, and high school at Marquette Senior High, and then began studying music in Philadelphia, thinking I was going to go into music, and um, I changed gears a little bit in college and ended up uh, in pre-medical studies in Rochester, New York, and then went to medical school at the University of University of Michigan here uh, in Ann Arbor. Um, God had a differing plan for us than I had initially thought. I did my residency at, out in New England in general surgery, and we did a seven-month rotation, uh, which I was able to arrange during my training at Tenwick Hospital in 1992 when we had one child, a 12-month-old baby. Um, we didn't know where God was leading us. We felt God was guiding us to some mission, and it wasn't until we actually got there that we really felt clearly God's hand of leading us. Now, times have changed, and we've gotten a little older, uh, and our kids have grown a little. We've added a daughter-in-law, and uh, all six of them will be here at the second service, if you're around, you'll be able to meet them and greet them. And our um, sons and daughters 
daughter, one daughter, has uh, have grown significantly, and we thank God for all that uh, he has given to us. What are you here for? We're going to talk from 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning. We're going to look at that passage. And if you remember, this passage follows the probably more famous passage of 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah has this this, uh, tremendous contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Now, to understand the times, you have to remember that King Ahab was the king of Israel at the time. King Ahab, according to Scripture, was the worst king in Israel's history. Now, that's no small feat to be the worst king because they had some really, really bad ones. According to chapter 16 of 1 Kings, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In addition to continuing the sin of Jeroboam of worshiping the Torah, he offered his he also added altars to Baal and Asherah. He offered his own son in sacrifice as he built a new city. He did things that make your hair stand on end. And if you combine him with his wife Jezebel, who was probably one of the most wicked women in history, you have about the most evil duo in all of history ruling Israel at that time. And that's the setting that Elijah was in when he came to Mount Carmel and had this contest with the, the priests of, of Baal that belonged really to Jezebel that she had brought in. And if you remember that story, they prayed and danced and cut themselves and uh, tried to get Baal to answer them all day and nothing happened. And at the end of the day, Elijah made his altar and poured water on it and God sent fire down and burned up the altar and then led 450 priests of Baal to the Kidron Brook where they were put to death. That's the preview to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, if you look there, we begin with these words. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Ahab was there. Jezebel wasn't at the contest. She was at home. Her priests were there. Ahab was there. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Jezebel was not happy. Then Elijah was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba. He went a day's journey. He lied down and he said in verse 4, asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. 
He's just won this massive contest before all of Israel, showing that Jehovah is the God above all gods, and Jezebel threatens his life, and he is afraid and runs away. Now, I can relate to Elijah. I can relate to highs and lows in life. I can relate to seeing God's hand work in tremendous ways today and tomorrow feeling afraid. And you're, how are we going to keep doing this day after day and year after year? Elijah was afraid and tired and worn out. And quite honestly, in the last three years, I've been tired and afraid and worn out quite a few times. And thinking, I've just had enough Like Elijah, maybe it's time to just lie down and be done. Now God came to him. He sent angels to him who baked bread for him and brought him water. And he woke up and there was bread and water and he ate. And he slept again and they brought him more and he ate again. And God seemed to be saying, okay, I understand, Elijah. I I understand. You're a human being. You're you're." struggling here. Let me feed you. Let me give you rest. Take some time to think. And then he traveled 40 days. 40 days is a significant number in the Scripture many times. Important things happen after 40 days, like the ark coming to rest, like uh, Moses going on to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, like Jesus going into the wilderness before he begins his ministry. Forty days he went and then came to Mount Horeb, which is the same mountain that Moses had received the Ten Commandments from. And God brings him to a cave in verse 9. What are you here for? came to him and he said, Elijah, what are you here for? What are you here for? Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sake the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And now they seek my life to take it away. He's still tired and worn out. So God says, go out and stand at the mouth of the cave. And the Scripture tells us, The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he knew it was God's voice. He wrapped his head, much like Moses wrapped his head, saying, I can't see the face of God. And that small voice came once again and said, what are you here for, Elijah? He was giving him another chance. Elijah, what are you here for? To focus for one minute. What are you here for? I'd like us to focus for one minute on the first part of that. What are you here 
for? What are you, what are you doing here? For me, I spend my time in Africa. What am I doing there? What are you doing here in Marquette, Michigan? My kids have been taking, my third son is in uh, pre-medical studies, and um, he's been helping with a physics class. And some of you will remember Newton's first law of motion. It says that every object in a uniform state of motion tends to stay in that state of motion unless an external force is applied to it. And some of us know that by the phrase, a body in motion tends to stay in motion. Now this particular truck driver forgot that idea, that when you hit the brakes real fast, the stuff in the truck keeps going. It doesn't until something like the front of the truck acts upon it, it's going to keep going. But there's a second part to that same law, which says that a body at rest tends to stay at rest. So you find something like this with incredible potential energy behind tremendous energy but it takes some force to get it going. Once it gets going, it's got tremendous energy. But sitting at rest, it's useless. It's a huge rock sitting up on a large place. As a kid, I had this great idea that if I was ever in a plane crash, I didn't know why people got so scared. I thought I'd climb out on the wing, and just before it hit the ground, I'd just step off. Just... (laughs) be a few feet to step off. No big deal. I didn't think about the fact that my body would be going the same speed as the airplane when I hit that ground. The converse is also true. A body at rest tends to stay at rest. And I'm convinced that the major force in many people's lives that determine their course is simple inertia. That a body at rest tends to stay at rest. And there may be a tremendous amount of potential energy that sits in one place and does nothing. We've been at Tenwick now for 20 years. It'll be 20 years in about two weeks when we first went full-time. It's 25 years since we went the first time. (coughs) But 20 years that we've been there full-time. Tenwick sits in the hills of the highlands west of the Great Rift Valley in Kenya. Community commitment is fairly simple and straightforward. It says we are a Christian community committed to excellence and compassionate health care, spiritual ministry, and training for service. And we try to make sure that everything we do fits under that umbrella, that that is our mission that we're trying to take to that area. In that vein, we see a lot of people. We see about 150,000 outpatients a year, admit about 15,000, do about 8,000 operations. We're training a, a wide group of students, medical students, interns, family practitioners, general surgeons, and orthopedic surgeons. Uh, we're one of the largest now medical training centers in the country. And then, as I mentioned, in recent years, uh, things God has moved in ways that I never thought he would. 
Uh, I honestly didn't think when we went to Africa that we'd ever be doing heart surgery there. I just thought it was too advanced, too much for that area. We're now doing two-thirds of all the cardiac surgery in the country, which by, by far does more than any country in that region. Uh, we're doing that there at Tenwick Hospital, and I would never have believed that. Never would have thought that could happen or that there was such a need for it. As we speak right now, there's 500 people waiting on a waiting list to have heart surgery uh, who won't get it till I go bigger uh, with the exception of a few visitors. And that list gets bigger and bigger every day. This is one of our first heart patients we did back in 2008 before we had cardiopulmonary bypass available. And this is our first resident doctor, Dr. Agneta Odera, uh, we operated on Daniel, who you see there, who could hardly walk from heart failure and is now quite a soccer player in his region of rural Kenya and West Pokot. Dr. Agneta assisted me on that first case, and we've done many, many more. This is Aisha, our little girl we did just oh, a few months ago. Aisha means life in, in Swahili. Her name means life. She suffers from from congenital heart disease, and you can see her fingers are kind of clubbed. Now, it's interesting. I should show you a before picture. Before her operation, those fingers were blue. After, they're pink. They're nice and pink now, and she will be able to lead a relatively normal life. This is a group that Agneta and I operated on one week there at Tenwick Hospital. All these children uh, having had heart surgery during that time. Another little one that had her case done that same week. So why am I there? And what am I doing there? What whole concept to Tenwick Hospital? Well, it was a rather simple concept. I was reminded years ago when I was in medical school of a story doctor, a missionary doctor, told a simple story. And he said, if you come upon ten men carrying a heavy log, and nine of them are on one end, and one is on the other, and you want to help them, where will you go? It made sense to me. It made pretty clear sense. You could go to the, the, the end with lots of people, and you'd have a good time, and you'd joke around, and... It wouldn't be bad to go there. You could add some help. But if you really wanted to help, you'd probably go to the end with the fewest people. As I looked at the map of the world and at the map of medical care in the world, looking at critical shortage areas, Africa jumps out at you as having the largest need. Africa's a huge continent. You can put all of North America... Um, all of Western Europe, India, Argentina, China, into that continent and still have a lot of room left over. It's a huge, huge place. In sub-Saharan Africa, we have 11% of the world's population, but 24%, nearly a quarter of the global disease burden, the entire then less than 1% of the burden in the world is in Africa and we spend less than 1% of the world's healthcare dollars there. 
Uh, it's not hard to see. There are 3% of the world's healthcare workers in that region to care for a quarter of the world's population. And up to 30 to 50% of those trained there leave and don't come back. This is what I was looking at and thinking, Lord, it's pretty clear this is a place I could serve you. This is a place I could use the gifts and abilities you've given me to serve you. One other way to look at it is looking at patients per doctor. And if you see North America is about 2,000 people per doctor. Every, for every 2,000 people, there's a doctor. In Africa, it's about 50,000. 50,000 for every doctor. It was clear to me where was I going to go if I wanted to make a difference. The simple practical numbers spoke to me. I had no blinding vision from heaven, no handwriting on the wall, no telegram from God. But it seemed to me to be clear that we should move, that we should put into motion some of the potential energy that God had given us. God's calling does not always make sense, particularly from a worldly, financial, or even a family relational point of view. As I mentioned, during the last three years, we've had plenty of times of doubt and disappointment. I can relate entirely to Elijah saying, I'm the only one serving you. God came to him and said, by the way, Elijah, there's 7,000 who've never bowed the knee to Baal. There's 7,000 people serving me here that you don't even know about. You're not the only one. I've had times where I've said it's time from a worldly, financial, and family relational point of view to call it quits and go home to America, to, to Marquette, to be honest, to, where, to this place. And uh, there's nothing wrong with being in Marquette. That's where I had fully intend and hope to be. But for me, God was saying, I still have work for you to do somewhere else. This is the team that we just took a picture of a couple weeks ago as I took them out one day to thank them for a couple years of service. This is the cardiac team that's developed, about 25 people. Those are nurses, technicians, a few doctors, uh, cleaners, a uh, wide variety of people who help there at tech work. It takes that size group to do the cardiac surgery that we're doing there at Tenwick. A couple months ago, they brought in a boy, his name is Abdi. Abdi's from a Muslim area, Somalia area. And uh, he was sent to Tenwick, transferred there with an unusual condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which means it's an it's a idiopathic paralysis. You start losing sensation in your feet and ability to walk, and it goes up and up and up. And on. with Abdi, it ended up, he could move his head, uh, he couldn't talk, he couldn't breathe, he couldn't eat. So he was on a ventilator for about three months when I saw him. He had bad bed sores on his back. And I thought, thank goodness I don't have to take care of him, to be honest, because that's the pediatric medical side. He's 16 years old. 
And about a month into it, he started to get better. He started to be able to breathe again. They'd gotten him off the ventilator. He had a hole in his neck and a hole in his stomach to feed him. When he developed a serious heart infection, endocarditis of his heart, and he blew out one of his valves, and they came to me and said, now he's yours. And I, <laughs> I said, oh, I don't see that working out well at all. We talked, his family, his mother, who looks about 16, as was taking care of him every day, doing physical therapy. We talked, and I said, you know, his, he doesn't have any good options. The best option is probably to try to fix his heart valve, but the risk of him dying from this is pretty significant. We planned for surgery and shared with Abdi that we had faith in Jesus, that Jesus has the power to make a difference in your life. He's a Muslim. His mother didn't want to hear much about that. The night before surgery, our anesthetist, one of those guys in the picture, went and talked to him, and Abdi gave his life to Jesus that night. He still hasn't told his parents, still today hasn't told his parents. That's quite a revelation to make. Abdi came through that operation well. We put a new heart valve in, and he's still recovering at Tenwick Hospital right now. He's off the ventilator. He's eating again. He's gone through some really rough times, as you might imagine, some depression, some disappointment, some pain, some sorrow, some wondering, what is this all about? What is God calling you to? He may not be calling you to Africa. He may not be calling you to heart surgery. He may be calling you, I just read yesterday in the end of Second Kings that when everything was destroyed, God left for himself in the fields and the poorest of the poor to be vine dressers and digging the fields. And that, was the remnant of Israel that became. What is, what is God calling you to here in Marquette, Michigan? And then finally, what are you here for? What are you here for? Do we have any Buckeye fans in the crowd? Is there anybody? Most Oh, we do. Okay, we've even got... Scarlet and gray, that's, that's uh, yeah, what do you know? So Buckeye fans, yeah. <laughs> he's a student there, okay, and you can read and write as well. That's good, that's good. I went to the University of Michigan, you know. Um, when you see Ohio, so give me, give me a little leeway here, just a little... A little permission. <laughs> when you see the Ohio State material, you see things like this. I hate Michigan. Next question. I don't hate often, but when I do, I prefer to hate the Michigan Wolverines. Um, and then, you know, you can go on to others on a, a lighter note. You don't let your friends root for Michigan. And then if you want to raise your children right, you teach them early to... to to track cheap humor that Michigan, and then there is that just poor sophomoric kind of cheap humor that that uh, needs no further explanation. 
Isn't it a shame to be defined by what you hate? And of course I'm kidding, a little bit. But don't we actually do this in the church, in our lives? Don't we, we are defined by what we are against? Isn't that a shame? To me, that's a shame. I don't want to be remembered for what I'm against necessarily in life. I'd like to be remembered by what I'm for. Even in medicine, we get there. You've probably heard this phrase, although maybe not in Latin, which is primum non nocere, but you've probably heard it. In English, it says, first of all, do no harm. Now, some people think that's part of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take. It's not. It's Latin. Hippocrates was Greek. This was much after Hippocrates. In fact, it was from a a medical doctor, Dr. Thomas Sydenham in the late 1600s, who wrote this about developing new medicines for gout. And he said, first of all, let's not harm anybody as we develop new medicines. Now, some people have taken this to the extreme, and they've said, first of all, do no harm. First of all, above all else, If you're going to start with that, I don't think you can finish with don't. First, before everything else, don't. I don't want to be remembered that way. And I don't think Jesus calls us to be that way. I want to be known, and I believe God wants us to be known for what we do and what we are for. So what should we be for? There are many, many, many passages of Scripture that you can go to that will tell you what to be for. There's one in Micah. They're throughout the Scripture where Micah says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and mercy, and walk humbly with your God? What are you here for? What is it that you want people to remember you for? Now, you know, every individual and every church has their things that they are against. You, you can list them, right? You know them in your head, all those things that a Christian doesn't do. And I'm not here to tell you to do any of those things. Whatever those specific things are, things that God... But I am here to challenge you to do the things that God is for. God is for justice and mercy and kindness and love and peacefulness and joy and patience and long-suffering. God is for those things, and we ought to be for those things as well. What What am I there for? Well, I'm there for people like Silas, our newest orthopedic surgery resident who just started this year, and Joyce, who joined him as one of our new residents, and Samuel, who's in general surgery, and Nerea, who is also in general surgery, and Frida, who's one of our second-year general surgery residents, and Marvin, who's orthopedics, and Sylvester, who's general surgery, 
and Sinket, who's of the Maasai tribe in general surgery, and Patricia, uh, who's in general surgery, and Ian Orwa, who's married to Frida in orthopedic surgery, and Lando of the Luo tribe, who did a few years of research with us and is now in the surgery program, and Yvonne, and Victor, and Fasto, who's from South Sudan, will be finishing next year and going back to South Sudan to be the only orthopedic surgeon in that entire region for December. And Mark will join a mission hospital next year when she finishes in December. And Mark, who will do the same, Dr. Kanye, John Kanye, who finished last year and started at the mission hospital that Valentine will be joining him at. They've got surgeons for the first time in many years. And Mike Mwachiro, who's been with us now for six years, and his wife, Liz, who have joined us on staff there at Tenwick. And while I'm here, they are teaching the residents back there right now. And Ivan Seno, who's up in northern Kenya, and Damaris, who's in Nairobi, and Philip, who was the first doctor at that hospital, that the other two will be joining him at, and Elijah, who's at the Presbyterian Hospital, and Jack, who's in Kisumu, and our group who graduated just last year as we bless them and share with them and send them out and commission them to go into the world and make disciples. And Dr. Araga, who was one of our first graduates, who will be our first cardiothoracic fellow starting in January of this year and do three years additional training in cardiothoracic surgery and go back to Malawi where he's been working to start a brand new program which has never been done. And Dr. Agneta Odera who starts cardiothoracic in January of this year in England and will join us as our pediatric heart surgeon in two years. This is the new job. That's what I'm for. This is the new plan. This is the new job that'll take me a number of years to get going. We're building, starting to build, a brand new cardiothoracic unit, which the architects tell me will look something like this. We have the site mapped out and the land ready to go. It's about 500 meters from our first hospital, so it's uh, very close. And this is what we think it will look like. That's what I'm there for. I'm there for what God has called me to do. What are you here for? You know, I think Elijah, unfortunately, missed it. I think Elijah was hurt and tired and worn out, and he couldn't see past his hurt and weariness to answer the question. And so God moved on. If you look at the end of chapter 19, he said, okay, Elijah, I want you to go back and anoint a new king of Syria, a new king of Israel, and a new prophet to replace you. I'm quite sure we'll see Elijah in heaven. There's very good scriptural evidence of that. Excellent scriptural evidence. Fact. Pretty much said it. We'll see Elijah in heaven, but I suspect, I don't know exactly how heaven works, but I suspect Elijah will say, yeah, 
probably could have done that one better. God gave me a chance to think and be rested and and move on, and I couldn't get past that. What are you here for? I pray you can answer God's gentle questioning. Let us pray. Father, as we think about the story of Elijah, may you move in our hearts and may you provide us the answer to that question, what are we here for? And may we be for the name of Jesus Christ and all that that means as disciples of Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.